Hello, my name is Karen Smith, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics and the Director of the LSC Ideas Women in Diplomacy Project. The focus of this episode of London Calling EU is the International Day of Women in Diplomacy, which was marked at Europe House by a panel event hosted by the EU delegation to the UK in partnership with LSE Ideas and Aspen UK, and we would like to take this opportunity to share the event with you. Entitled, Securing a Seat at the Table, Women in International Diplomacy, our panel featured four distinguished speakers, Sally Axworthy, the Deputy Director and Head of Negotiations and Peace Processes Department in the FCDO's Office for Conflict Stabilization and Mediation, Dr. Fatou Bensouda, the High Commissioner of Gambia to the UK, Sophie Katsarava, the Ambassador of Georgia to the UK, and Natalia Royo, the Ambassador of Panama to the UK. And it was moderated by my colleague, Professor Chris Alden, Director of LSC Ideas. Chris began the discussion by asking Sally Axworthy of FCDO just what in particular women's presence contributes to the diplomatic table. I think it's difficult to generalise about women. We are, by our nature, more interested in women and women's issues, and that is possibly one of the things we bring to the table. I can give you an example from my time as ambassador to the Holy See. So this was a place where I think almost the entire Holy See diplomatic service uh, were men. They did have one female deputy foreign minister, uh, but they had to be priests. So they were, they were men. And it was quite a male dominated sort of culture. If there were events, panel events, it was normal for all the speakers to be men. There were no women. At first, I thought maybe one shouldn't raise issues of gender. You know, I thought maybe it would be a difficult subject. But that turned out really not to be the case. And Pope Francis himself was really trying to increase the representation of women and women in leading roles in the church. And so I and my fellow female ambassadors, of which there were quite a few, found that, you know, we could make a difference to this agenda. Mm -hmm. So we did various things. So one of the things I did was I tried to shine a light on what the work of the religious sisters Because the Catholic Church, those of you who are Catholics may know that there are more religious sisters in the world, Catholic religious sisters, than there are (coughs) priests. And they're often at the front line of doing some really difficult and dangerous work. I mean, they're the ones who run hospitals and schools in places where there aren't hospitals and schools, and they often put themselves in personal danger. And this was really a bit ignored in Rome. So, you know, I ran events where we showcased the work of the religious sisters, lobbied for their support, you know, just generally tried to raise their profile. And as a female ambassador, I could do that. Since you have this very nice network of women diplomats, I should also mention that while I was in the Holy See, uh, the UK ceased to be a member of an important international body, uh, (laughs) which left me personally a little bit uh, bereft because we also had a very nice heads of mission group. uh, And that actually coincided with COVID. One of my colleagues suggested that the women set up a a group and the dean of the women ambassadors was actually the Panamanian colleague. Uh, So we set up this group and it was very nice because we had a, a complete diversity of membership because if you choose people on the basis that they're women, uh, you, you know, you get women from everywhere. So we had the United States and we had Canada, we had Australia, we also had uh, Nicaragua, Panama, Peru. You know, we, we had a, a great diversity and together we ran meetings and we invited speakers. And I think for all of us, that gave us an insight. I mean, the Holy See is like a mini multilateral organization and it gave us an insight into the perspectives of other parts of the world. It gave us contacts. It was very practical and very useful. But I could go on about this subject for probably hours, so I will stop there. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Ambassador. 
Thank you very much. And um, I also join my colleague to thank uh, the organizers and for inviting me to share my experience. I think I'll just first start with my former position, my immediate past position as Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. I had previously been the deputy, and why it makes a difference that uh, women are in these positions. I remember when I was the deputy chief prosecutor, I was very concerned about the fact that women were not in the high positions. We did have women, but they were not in the top positions, only in the lower positions. And uh, what I did was I make, made a, a very active, proactive steps into seeing that women would also be the investigators or the, the senior trial lawyers. In fact, I would even scout, you know, for those who are interested to apply for positions. And uh, I, I was proud to say that by the time I left, we had a sizable number of women who were in those positions. When I became the chief prosecutor, one of the first things that I wanted, in fact, I started it already, but one of the first things I wanted to bring attention to was sexual and gender-based crimes. In fact, I developed a policy just one year into my term. I developed a policy which was the first policy of any international court or tribunal on sexual and gender-based crimes. The policy was uh, out in 2014, I think. And why I did that was um, I know that sexual and gender-based crimes are crimes that were underreported, in fact. I saw that with my predecessors, most of the time, we tried to find excuses why we couldn't charge the sexual and gender-based crimes. And we see that when these conflicts happen, I saw that when these conflicts happen, usually women are those who bear the brunt, women and children. So my first policy was on women, and my second policy was on children in and affected by armed conflict. So I think this made a difference. And by the time that my term was, was done, I made sure that every individual who's working on cases, you know, these, these were very serious cases, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. This is what we were investigating. But I made sure that the investigation of sexual and gender-based crime formed a core, the key part of our investigations. And wherever we could find the evidence, we were going to charge for these crimes. And I believe that that made a big difference. And uh, in the end, you could see that one of the things that investigators and prosecutors were very much aware of was looking for the evidence on sexual and gender-based crimes. I think this made a difference. Another example that I can cite, I think you may have heard of Navi Pillay. Navi Pillay is a judge from South Africa who was one time also the uh, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And uh, when she was sitting as a judge at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the prosecution brought, I was, I was there, I, I served there as well. The prosecution brought evidence. And when the evidence was being led, we found out that rape was not charged for. It's, it is the Akayesu case, if you can look it up. Rape was not charged for, and the judge actually recommended to the prosecution that they should go and look into that crime. And it was charged and it has become now a very, very important precedent in international criminal justice. And that is because I believe as a woman, 
she was able to bring that perspective. Thank you. <laughs> Natalia Roy. Thank you so much for the organizers. I just want to share that I've been, it's the first time I, I am ambassador. I start, my first assignment was in 1994 in the United Nations. I arrived there as a very, in a very low rank as an attache. And it was interesting because when I arrived to the United Nations in 1995, we have the war, the fourth world conference on women in Beijing. So all the program of action was discussing the United Nations and I have to say that marked my life, opened my eyes, not only because of the statistics, but also of the big arguments that it was everything based on the difference between sex and gender. Before, we, we are very aware now about gender, but at that time in 1995, it was a big discussion among women. Sex, that is a biological difference between men and women, and let's say, and gender is more socially constructed qualities and difference between men and women. So at the end, it prevailed gender, but I have to say that you realize at that moment, everything has been influenced by history, religion, patriarchal societies, economic power. So it really makes a difference to say sex or gender. From then on, I realized that not only in the paper, but when you see also in the organizations that I later work in a lot of multilateral organizations in the UN, we never have had a secretary general, a women secretary general. I work in organization of American states. It has never had a female secretary general. I work in UNESCO. At least they have had two secretary generals from, but recent from 29, they have the first female checkered secretary general. And another multilateral organization that I work with is SEHIP, is a secretariat, Ibero-American secretariat that is composed of 22 countries, 19 for Latin American, Spain, Portugal, and Andorra. It has never had a secretary general. So. My main message is that we have to try to get to the top. <laughs> Forget about the second. <laughs> you have to get to the top. Thank you. Ambassador Kusaraha. Well, thank you very much. Obviously, echoing thanks. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for hosting us and your entire team. It's been a fantastic organization as well. And the substance-wise distinguished speakers, um, I, I'm really happy to be uh, with you today. And my dear colleague, uh, Laura, you've said that it's your last speech today in your capacity as the president of the network. Uh, big congratulations to you because you spoke about the network. Uh, it's a fantastic institution and I would like to give tribute to, to Laura and her work over the last several months for raising the profile of the network. Uh, so thank you and your team. It's my first posting as well. It's always interesting to, uh, it's a nice icebreaker to suggest I'm the first ambassador to the UK. I am not, I'm the second. And it's a good sign in a way, but uh, it's my first posting uh, in the UK. And um, one thing that I can say, uh, obviously talking about gender equality and women's empowerment, 
solidarity is is very important. And this is what I've seen from the very first day that I arrived here as part of the network. Um, uh, and it's been a great support. We all uh, went through some challenges, especially the ones who arrived in 2020, everywhere really. And for, for a diplomat, it must be quite a tough time for any diplomat, whether it's ambassador or diplomat arriving during the lockdown. But let's put that aside. Uh, it's more about showing support. It's more about showing uh, solidarity uh, and friendship. And I think that's what the, the network is about. Uh, there were several examples and really interesting ex examples that I've heard. I also want to recall one of those when I was a member of the par parliament and actually the first chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee since uh, Georgia gained its independence. And my first natural instinct in the parliament was to also create some kind of a network of female ambassadors uh, in, in Georgia, precisely because I think to answer the question, what difference does it make? Each and every probably female ambassador tries to support uh, uh, women, but as a group, it probably makes even more, uh, more impact. Uh, and it brings in uh, lots of different perspectives. And that's what we should be doing, perhaps, um, as individuals, as in institutions, wherever we are, uh, regardless of the country, regardless of the place, regardless of the institution, because it does make difference. And uh, when we believe truly and genuinely uh, believe in real gender equality, as uh, as Ambassador said, we are talking about real gender equality. I think in the first place, we need to understand why this is important, because we all understand the importance of it. We need to go beyond it and we need to try to find the ways what else we can do to make more difference. And I think there are lots of ways, uh, which we'll be discussing today during the panels, not why this is important, but what else we can do to make uh, a real difference. Thank you very much. I wonder if I can sort of build on that. Sally, if you would uh, could um, speak to the challenges and obstacles in institutional sense in your experience as, as a diplomat. Are there particular things that stand out to you as, as uh, more difficult, more of a challenge than that? So, I mean, I think we all face similar challenges to the ones outlined by the ambassador. In the British Foreign Service, I think the current statistic is a third of ambassadors or heads of mission are women. And around, I think it's around 42, 40-something 40, 40 percent of the senior civil service. So that's progress. You know, 20 years ago, it was probably around 20 percent of ambassadors. And when I joined, it was I think we had four female ambassadors. So we're making progress. On the obstacles, so why have we got, we've got a little bit stuck, I think, on about uh, 30% uh, of ambassadors. Until now, I think we have made progress. Certainly, I think things began to change in the Foreign Office when the women themselves got organised. You know, when women started asking for, for more, you know, for, and there were some things that I think we needed to make that possible. So, you know, sort of some family-friendly policies, which also obviously benefit men. But there were women who left because they did not want to work five days a week, uh, you know, when they had children. And so the thing that I think has made a big difference to us is job sharing, which I've done myself, where you, you can really switch off when you're not at work. That's been great. Part-time working, we haven't been so successful with because, you know, the jobs tend to be five-day-a-week jobs. So, so family-friendly policies, taking career breaks if you want to take some time off, all these things meant women didn't leave, they stayed. 
you know, and then they progress through the ranks. I mean, now we're probably in the realms of thinking about how men and women behave, which is much more difficult. Certainly, it's difficult to generalize about it. But uh, there has been some thinking done about that, about I think men might be more adept at finding out what the system is and working it, uh, whereas women maybe wait for their work to be recognized. That's a huge generalization. But there there are maybe some behavioral differences. And I think in, in the Foreign Office, maybe, you know, recently we've had some fairly eye-catching progress. I mean, at one point a couple of years ago, all of our ambassadors to the G7 countries were all women. And we have, I'm sure lots of you have seen it, but in the Foreign Office, there's a mirror wall, so it, which, list, which has all the top jobs in our diplomatic service. And the idea is that when one of them is done by a woman, then her photo goes up. And the ones that have never been done by a woman just have a mirror. So you can, the idea is you look at it and think, that could be me. I'm not sure that works, but never mind. (laughs) Um, So I think we don't, we've never had a female ambassador to Riyadh. uh, And we've never had a female permanent undersecretary. But we're getting there with practically all the other jobs. Um, And then that kind of comes on to another issue, which is the pipeline issue, which uh, people were talking about, which the ambassador was talking about. Um, So, you know, we've never had a female ambassador to Riyadh. When I joined the Foreign Office, none of the women who joined with me, and it was actually about 50-50 women, although I think that year was an anomaly, but none of the women who joined with me were asked to do Arabic language training. Uh, We all did hard language training, but none of us did Arabic. And it took really a long time. We now have an initiative to uh, get more women doing Arabic. So there will be a pipeline in the future, but there isn't a pipeline or there isn't a pipeline on the same level as the men of Arabic speakers. So, so you know, I think thinking ahead and preparing people is also an issue. Uh, um, mentoring, sponsoring, these are all things the Foreign Office does. Sponsoring means, you know, somebody champions you, speaks up about you, suggests you for jobs. These things all really help. We are also interested in the uh, situation in multilateral organizations where, you know, the challenges we face are mirrored in multilateral organizations. So I think the UN, um, I think the UN (coughs) statistics are quite similar to ours, actually, that there's, I think, around 40% senior women, but that goes down if you look at field missions. Um, so again, you know, we're, we're a UN member state. We have people who work in the UN. So, so, you know, one of our interests is to have more women working in senior positions in the UN and therefore to think about our own pipeline, how we prepare people for those jobs in particular, you know, how we demystify the uh, application process and encourage them to apply. But we have to keep working on this, I think. It does, this doesn't just apply to women. There are other forms of diversity where we don't, that we as the Foreign Office aspire to represent the UK. So the UK is roughly 50% women. We have ethnic minority percentage of around 13, 14%. We aspire to represent the UK as it is. And we don't do that, but it's important that we work on it. Your Excellency. I'm still coming second to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the first female ambassador to the UK. For Gambia, I'm the second. So I I, I think uh, for that also, the Gambia is trying. And we have quite a few female ambassadors across the world now in the Gambia. And I, I, I think that it's, it's a good thing. We are not yet there. We are not at a 50-50. Women are coming up, and I believe that we're doing a very good job. Um, I feel that uh, the challenges that are faced by African women ambassadors is actually quite unique. And uh, for this reason, you, you talked about getting together. We formed this uh, small network of African women heads of mission to be able to discuss uh, problems that are maybe common to us. Um, as you know, most of, us, most of the African countries, if not all of them, are former colonies. 
And uh, so we, we really have uh, something unique. And the challenges that uh, we, we're facing are a bit uh, different. But also uh, talking about challenges in general and even at international organizations, again, I will draw on my experience when I was at the ICC. People always, you find that they have expectations from you and some don't even have expectations because you're a woman. And this is not only coming from outside, but even from within. You will have those who will have a certain perspective about who you are, what you're doing. And it is only when you prove yourself, really, that you earn that respect. Otherwise, they just have an impression that you will do this in a certain way, or you'll do this in, and maybe even not uh, competently, perhaps. But I, the policy that I had at the ICC was without fear or favor. I made sure that I did my work according to the book. It was very controversial. ICC was always on the headlines. When we had the Bashir case, it was the same thing of Sudan. When we had the uh, uh, Laurent Bagbo case of Cote d'Ivoire, it was the case, the, the Kenya cases, all of the cases are controversial. And then, uh, for instance, we had this pushback by Africa against the court. You know, I was right there and I had to find a way to see what can be done to bring Africa back. Because the accusation wrongly was that ICC is only targeting African and African leaders. I am an African. I think the last thing that I would do is to target the continent. But I also made it very clear that I was standing for the victims, you know, not for the political leaders. I'm standing for the victims of these atrocity crimes and that wherever it occurred and we have jurisdiction, I was to go after it. And this meant, uh, especially when there was a resolution at the African Union, that African states are coming to pull out of the ICC. So I had to take it upon myself to go around to meet African leaders everywhere and to make myself available. And also to, if they have questions, to ask me, but also to explain what the court was doing and what the court was about, because there was a strong propaganda against the court, pushing against the court that, you know, this court has been set up and it's set up for Europeans to try Africans. So a a, a very difficult uh, perspective for people to take. And in the end, I was able to get it off the agenda of the African Union and the withdrawal of African states did not finally take place. But those are just some of the challenges that we faced at the ICC. As ambassador here, I find that a lot of the work that I did at the ICC is also helping me in a way because there has to be a lot of collaboration and a lot of cooperation, not only amongst us as ambassadors, but also of course, with different uh, institutions and different states. Uh, but one of the things that I believe most African ambassadors are also challenges that they are facing. Sometimes, you know, even to run the mission itself is quite difficult because of budgetary constraints. I think most of us face that. And then there are so many things that you would want to do, um, but you do not have the means to perhaps uh, do it or do it properly. Sometimes you have to cut corners and then it's not the same. So, yes, these are the challenges. But despite, I believe it is a very important work that, that should be done, that has to be done. And we'll do our best.
Thank you very much, <laughs> Ambassador. Thank you. Well, I think that thinking about obstacles, uh, while you were talking, I was thinking, and I think that basically the biggest obstacle, it will be recon the idea of not being able to reconcile family and work. I receive a lot of young diplomats asking me that they don't want to dedicate to the diplomacy because they want to get married and they want to have children. I am married and I have two children, but I have to say that I come from a region that is very sexist and, and is Latin America is very patriarchal region. And I have to say that even from family on different stages of my career, I receive comments like, it doesn't look very good that you are dedicated so much to your career because what are you doing with your children? Nobody's going to be able to, to marry you because you are very autonomous. <laughs> and so forget about getting married. So I think it's very important to, <laughs> now that I am 55, I'm very happy to have been able to reconcile both. And you can do it. And like women can do it and they can do it enough and you will be much more respected even for the same family that was telling you you will never get married. <laughs> so, and well, that's basically the obstacles. So it's important to oppose and to try to de deconstruct this bias mm -hmm. and these stereotypes that women mm -hmm. has. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, uh, I'm afraid I won't say anything different <laughs> um, because we we speak on uh, on our personal experience and these are the examples that's probably also interesting to talk about personal examples because in this room at least and beyond this room we we are aware of the data we are aware of the statistics we're aware of general uh, conventional concepts about uh, what the challenges are, uh, what the solutions are, why we need to empower women, etc., etc. But I think personal examples still matter a lot and they are very interesting. So thanks for sharing them. So my personal example would be the same. Before becoming ambassador, I never, ever thought about any obstacle and any challenge whatsoever. A, that I was so excited about this opportunity to be my country's ambassador to the United Kingdom. I, for a single second, didn't think that I would have any challenges. And I'm not talking about stereotypes or I was never worried about them. And every society does have stereotypical kind of attitudes. And that's also nothing new and neither endemic to Georgia. It happens uh, in, in many countries, but that's not the main issue for me. And I, I never saw that I would have any challenge really. But then I realized <coughs> it's my third year uh, in the UK. I love my job. I'm in the same way excited about this job and the job that I'm doing and thinking that, you know, it's for the good cause, et cetera, et cetera. But juggling the family and the work, it's a big challenge, especially when it's very difficult for me to prioritize, which is a priority in my case, because both are exactly in the same way priority. The family, I mean children, and the work, or is it the work or the children? So <laughs> both are key priorities in my life. So that makes it even more difficult to play around. And if you allow me, uh, I would also bring, it's not just a challenge as a challenge, it is for everybody, but uh, maybe I will try to look at a different, from a different perspective. 
let's put a male ambassador in any country. I'm not specifying any country anywhere, a country, male ambassador, a single male ambassador with three kids, two, one, four, five kids, do not matter in the number, <coughs> but male ambassador with kids. Uh, would that male ambassador have exactly the same challenges as the single ambassador, female ambassador with three kids, four, five, or one. That's where, the, where I also see the difference. Because in my society, at least, children would be taken care by the mother. Well, obviously, when there are two parents, by both. But when it's the single ambassador looking after the children, it's mostly the female. So in that case, it makes the job even more uh, challenging. So I think that is something that, you know, every society, every country needs to address it in the, from, from, from their own perspective. And there is no single recipe to it, you know, institutional support or, or there are different ways to tackle it. Current context, yes, it's a challenge for every probably female ambassador, and mm -hmm. that's what has been raised. But <laughs> otherwise, it's very easy to, not very easy, really, it's quite complicated, <laughs> but at the same time, really easy to overcome stereotypes. It's the way how you look at them. And you can be the one who can break those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And that's also a very good way of looking at that challenge. And if you allow me, uh, we had uh, last year, we had five-time world champion, female chess champion in London. Mm -hmm. She's a big name uh, in Georgia and not just in Georgia. La Laura remain, uh, remembers her. Well, I hosted an event for her because she's a legend mm -hmm. in Georgia. Uh, Queen's Gambit, actually. I think the story is about her, but wow. it's just my speculation, not just mine. But <laughs> many, many think that it's about her story. But anyway, and what's really, uh, what's really striking about I mean, she, her story is amazing. And the way she told the story, what she said is that it took me only two years to prove to male chess champions that they had to respect me. <laughs> only two years. <laughs> so... Miracles also happen. <laughs> <laughs> what I hear too is that there are different cultures within which institutional culture one has to deal with, the host country culture, one's own home culture as well. So all these come into play in the different stresses and, and obstacles that that brings with it. It's a real pleasure to be on a panel with such accomplished and articulate diplomats and uh, we dealt with some very interesting and difficult topics, and you've shared your views. And I know that I appreciate them, as does our audience here. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that overview and experiences of women in diplomacy. To keep up to date on what the EU delegation, LSC Ideas, and Aspen UK are doing, please visit our social channels or indeed visit Europe House in the heart of Westminster. But goodbye for now, and stay tuned for the next episode of London Calling EU.